Just so you know, there are a couple of very mild swear words in this podcast episode. I don't think it's anything that's going to offend anyone, but I just thought I should put it out there from the outset. Hello, I'm Sophia and I'd like to welcome you to my place where art and grief meet. I'm really so glad to have you here, dear listener. I did not expect to find myself in a place where I was going to be producing a podcast, particularly not on my own. If this was a perfect world, I would have had my dad and my brother, who were both musicians, who both recorded. Um, They would be here with me, sort of twiddling dials and buttons and making this sound seamless. But unfortunately, both of them are dead and they're probably part of why I'm doing this project in the first place. So here I am on my own, pretty raw, trying to work out how to best present to you the conversations that I'm having with some really fascinating people. So be patient with me and I'm sure the quality of these podcasts will improve as we go along. And do note that I don't always expect to have this very romantic voice, but I just can't shake this cold and I don't want to wait any longer before I do this recording. So in the spirit of accepting that things are what they are, onward. So for this inaugural episode of When Art and Grief Meet, I wanted to bring on board somebody who has a really rich, creative voice who is a compulsive maker and who is incredibly talented, but also somebody who I knew because I thought that way they would be more patient with me as I fumble around with technology that I don't understand. So my guest today is Debbie Crazy. She is a compulsive maker of beautiful things. Her family were all makers as a matter of course. And so as her creative voice evolved, I think she was encouraged to follow her passions and to do what came naturally to her. She was extremely bright as a young person, as she is now as an older person, but she was extremely bright when she was little. So she started school early and that meant that as she reached later in her teenage years, there was some leeway for her to drop out and drop back into school. So that meant that During the course of her schooling years, she spent a period of time at the Victorian Tapestry Workshop doing a tapestry apprenticeship. She spent time doing a sign writing apprenticeship that she didn't love. She also did a year at the Australian Ballet Corps because music is also very much part of her creative expression. She is mother to Polly, who is in her mid-twenties and is independent and fabulous and she lives with a menagerie of dogs and cats 
And also, I guess we could include in that menagerie, Graham, who is her partner. So without any further ado and fanfare, no, and with fanfare, no, whatever, forget the fanfare. Let's just bring on board my friend, the compulsive maker of beautiful things, Debbie Crisey. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so So where are we? So where are we? Well, you're sitting there and you are knitting. What are you knitting? Um, um, It's a cow. A a cow? A cow, which is like a scarf that's joined together. But um, it's really just because I don't have to concentrate while I'm knitting this Mm -hmm. but you know me I can't sit still and not make something so this Mm. is my knitting that I do when I need to concentrate on something else (laughs) yes so how long have we known each other I don't have to say years because it's numbers and I don't relate but you know I think I've known you since I was 24 and I'm 62 61 so that's a long time (laughs) um yeah we met uh, through Council of Adult Education, which is a place we both work. And then couple, like 10 years down the track, we actually shared a house together. So that was fun too. Kindred spirits too, though. We are. We because, are. like, I, I can remember feeling very much at home with you when we were, when we were at home, funnily, but yeah. feeling very much at home in, you know, you would be knitting, I would be knitting, or I would be trying to crochet or trying to do something but we very rarely just sat and were doing the thing that we were doing whether it was watching telly or yeah had friends around or whatever there we were always engaged in doing something else while we were being passive we were were being active while we were being passive which was something that joined us what happened with me though was when I had my injury I had to stop uh, I couldn't do any of the handcrafts mm. and stuff. But you have managed, like, through some real difficulty to mm. continue. Can you talk to me about that? Well, um, I used to knit for a living and I really messed up my arms and my hands. So there was a period of time where I couldn't actually even brush my teeth by myself because mm. I couldn't use my hands. So I had um, really bad carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm. So that was a period of not creating anything for me, which was quite miserable. Um, Mm. Probably was about eight months. And then as soon as I got the use of everything back by doing some pretty radical exercise therapy, I started again but learned to pace myself so that I wasn't doing the same activity all day long. Mm -hmm. Um, And then again, after I had the breast cancer, I had breast cancer in 2008, 11, 2012, after I had the major operation, I couldn't knit because everything was very sore. I just couldn't use my arms the way I used to use them for, you know, several months. Yeah, so I don't think Graham quite understood Mm. the um, level of the intensity of my my um, needing to create because I was kind of quite agitated for a while because I couldn't do what I used to do and then when I started knitting all the time he was like shocked that that's that I knit all the time but yeah. you know anybody that's known me for a long time would know that I just take it everywhere mm-hmm. you know even to the pictures you know, you know whenever I just go and visit somebody or whatever I just yeah whip my knitting out of my bag and start knitting because I can't sit still 
I feel like part of my brain doesn't work properly. Even when I was at meetings at work, you know, we'd have big school meetings and I'd get all these people glaring at me because I was knitting, but I was contributing to the conversations and able to sort of follow everything a lot better because it's sort of like it hones my Mm-hmm. my concentration to be able to do something else that's takes a, away the white noise. Well, absolutely. But that's a really, like, I'm not uh, uh, diagnosing you in any way or anything, but <laughs> it's a very, like, it's familiar, it's familiar territory in my world because mm. I know that with Milo, he will pace and he will pace yeah. because he, he there has to be that movement or, you know, like I, I am fiddling with things all the time and I've yeah. noticed that I do that all the time. It helps me concentrate. So yeah, it's not a strange uh, concept to me. It's funny because um, I say to people when I'm working at the wool shop, you know, how I watch TV, read a book and knit at the same time and mm-hmm. I've always done that. Um but I, 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 maybe I have got ADHD. I don't know. <laughs> but then people that know me would think I'm the opposite because I can focus on something so but the intricate that for you, such a long time. The yeah. thing about having ADHD or ADD is that the thing that you are interested in, you hyper-focus on. Yeah. And the things that don't interest you, you can't engage with and can't well, see, then I, then I haven't because I just focus on everything. When you weren't able to make stuff, did you did that heighten your awareness of how much you need to do it when you do it? When you yeah. had it removed, because it, it did really did. Because mm-hmm. I, I felt really restless and unfulfilled, and not myself. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't living my authentic life. Now, if I had any sort of um, interviewing chops, I probably would have stopped Deb at this moment to note the significance of the comment she's making. And that is that without the ability to make, she wasn't able to live her authentic life. It's actually part of the fibre of who she is, all of this making. And who was creative in your family? Everybody, I think. Well, in terms of my, both of my parents, were, my dad was a tailor and my mum was a seamstress, machinist, and my nana was all of those things, but she lost both of her four fingers. She got bitten by a, a red-backed spider and they weren't sure because both of her hands swelled up which hands it was, so they took both of her four fingers, which meant that she couldn't knit anymore, but she could still embroider and she used to be sought after to do people's wedding trousseaus and things mm-hmm. like that. She was a tailor to begin with and Dad didn't want to be a tailor. He wanted to be an engineer. But oh, back in the day, if you're a young Jewish boy from a working class family, you went and did an apprenticeship in tailoring and that's, mm-hmm. that was what you did. But he was brilliant at all sorts of um, construction of anything, really. He could do all sorts of woodwork and things like that and really fight good fine motor skills. Dad was really good freehand drawer. So if you sort of said to him, I want a dress or I want a pair of pants that look kind of like this, he would draw it up and you'd say, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Mm -hmm. And he hand sewed as well. Like a lot of the bespoke tailoring was hand sewing. And he used to work for his cousins when he stopped being a tailor full time. So they used to just bring him 
cut out pictures out of Vogue magazines or fashion magazines and say, can you make pockets like that? And he'd just make up the patterns and do them. And Nana and Mum used to do lovely embroidery. So they taught me embroidery from when I was pretty small. But Mum could just barely knit. She could knit and purl. And that's Mm -hmm. about it. Like she Mm -hmm. took about four years to make me a jumper. And then I accidentally sat in front of the header and burnt the whole back of the jumper. (laughs) So she was very distraught. I was about seven and she unpulled the whole thing and then made me like one of those dolly jumpers with the stripes because she used the wool to make the rest of the jumper and then just use scraps for the stripes, which I thought was quite innovative. But yeah, she was really pissed off at me because by the time she'd finished that, I'd already made my first three garments. Right. Like I was in grade three, I think, when I made my first jumper. Wait, what? Grade three? She started school when she was three. So by grade three, she would have been seven, seven years old and making her own garments. Extraordinary. Like most kids, I just drew and drew and drew. And that's sort of what catapulted me towards going to a tech school that specialised in art and design mm-hmm. and then going on to try and do the fine arts degree because that was what I knew I could do best. So in Deb's world, all children draw and draw and draw, which is a beautiful thing. I don't think it's universal, but it's how Deb perceives the world. And she's about to embark on a life in the fine arts, which sounds just perfect. I I remember after I finished art school, I went and got a job in a printing company for a while. And all I did for six months was use this brown sort of like gouache paint to cover up um, the holes on any of the negatives that were about to go on on the metal plates. And that was the most mind-numbingly boring thing. And it was like, look, I can do any of the stuff. that I can screen print. I can, you know, I know how to use a lithographic press. Let me, yeah. that's all I did for six months. So for me at art school, instead of choosing painting, which is what everybody's pressured to do, I did sculpture and printmaking and printmaking is a process. It's like, Mm. yes, there's a creative aspect to any art form, but, you know, to achieve what you want to make, you have to be skilled and learn the craft. Yeah. And printmaking's got a lot of process to it like it's sort of raw science and mixing the chemicals and doing everything in a particular order etc and the same with certain types of sculpture like you know if you're casting in resin it's a little bit scientific like sort of cooking up the batches of chemicals to make what you want to do work and painting you have to know about the paints so I like that aspect of the creativity Mm. because that's the bit that I can focus on and then the creative stuff happens unbeknownst to me sometimes it's almost like I go into a trance of doing the process and then the creation comes out of that and that's what the process of drawing always used to be really meditative for me or get lost in making the art like Mm. you would know when you get lost in making the art it's because the process is unlocking that part of your brain Mm. like while you're focusing on the nuts and bolts of how to do something yeah somewhere else this sort of thing is being processed of what you saw in your dream or on the street today or how how it plays out and impacts on the actual product that you're making you know yeah yeah. I totally get it it's a really weird process for me I have to be involved in the actual production 
to the point where I don't feel like I've been quite creative for a long time. I feel like I've been recreative for a long time mm. because I haven't had the med- mental capacity to just create or mm. feel uh, feel like I've got anything new. Two things here. Deb is telling me for the first time that drawing is a magical process for her and like I've known her to doodle but I've never really seen her immersed in drawing so that's the first thing and secondly the revelation that all this time she is recreating and not creating that's a whole thing because when you look at her from and an outsider's perspective, even somebody who knows her really well, you think that the things that she is making every day are a manifestation of self-expression purely because they're coming from her hands. But what she's telling us is that there's a whole other level that she isn't expressing, that she isn't accessing. And her means for doing that naturally is drawing, but she's just not doing it. And she talks about why. A lot of it's to do with confidence. Mm. And having gone to art school, that almost crushed the creativity out of me. And I know that it did for a lot of people that were there in that period of time because it was so male-centric and so painting-focused that if you were an outlier, you were just really castigated and, and made to feel inferior. And I can't tell you how many times I'd get thrown at me, oh, that's just craft. What you're doing is just craft, like as if craft has no value. When you say it's just craft or it's just, you know, that, that, that there mm. was that attitude, but then we would look at what you were creating. Yeah. Make, they were yeah. like so intricate and so beautiful. And and nowadays and all, if you were doing all that. all out of my head. <laughs> exactly. It was just off the yeah. cuff. But like if you were doing that now, people would be, I think that, I think attitudes have shifted. A fair bit. Yeah. About well, they have the value completely because of- when you look at Instagram, there's a Mexican guy that does similar things to those bags. He's sort of gets quite a lot of attention and followers doing that. And I think to myself, they're beautiful. And I just think, isn't that funny? Because I was doing that 30 years ago. Mm. I'm going to put a link to the fellow that Deb's referring to um, when she's talking about the Mexican fellow who makes bags like she did. But I can tell you straight up that the stuff Deb was making was far more intricate and beautiful than what he's doing, even though what he's doing is nice. Would uh, Tell me then mm-hmm. about, because um, the project is about where grief and loss intersects with creativity mm-hmm. and how one can inform or impede the other. So... In your experience, there has been huge losses in your life mm-hmm. and I like losses of family members. There's been having cancer. There's been a lot of things. How did it inform your creativity or how did it, did it have an this, impact? Yeah, I think a little bit of everything really because with mum, that was so stressful with her passing and the fact that she was in a hospice for six months instead of two weeks, which you're supposed to only go in for a short mm-hmm. period of time. I was in a mega um, creative phase then and I think I was just throwing everything at trying to t- 
take myself into another place. So I was designing a lot of knitwear. Um, I got married in that period of time. Fred had a nervous breakdown at, at that time. Our house got robbed. My car got stolen. It was all going on. And at the same time, I was just making mm-hmm. like a maniac. Mm-hmm. But then my arms fell apart. So I think I made too much like a maniac. But Mm. the other aspect of that was that I was married to a musician whose sisters were both really well-known painters and I was totally intimidated. So I stopped drawing Mm. and I stopped making art as opposed to craft because Mm -hmm. I felt like I would be compared unfavorably to their talent because they were both so incredibly talented and I didn't feel like I lived up to that. What um, when you look at what they're doing what Mm. what's what's talent to you in that sense? What did they have that you felt you didn't have? They had um, really distinctive styles of their own painting and they both painted quite differently to each other, but they were both really sort of masters at what they did. And Sue had, you know, representation in a major, major gallery. And they both had work in the National Gallery. So they like, and they both won government grants to go live overseas for a mm-hmm. year in different studios. So, like, clearly they were doing whatever they were doing, they were doing it right you know, in terms of the way other people perceived them. And I loved their work. I thought their work was beautiful. But, yeah, I just felt like I couldn't compete. And I also felt that they'd gone to VCA and I'd gone to Caulfield. So I was a second-class artist compared to them because VCA was the upper echelon in the way that you thought about things. So you kind of bought you bought the um, I bought propaganda. into the bullshit, yeah. I bought into the bullshit. So for some reason, this person who is a natural creator has come unstuck due to a lack of confidence and buying into some crazy ideas about what makes a person a legitimate artist. And I don't think that's uncommon. My life's come full circle because I spend a lot of time with people that I went to art school with now that I didn't see for nearly 20 years in Mm. the middle. And, you know, some of them are working every single day and then others, it's a real struggle for them to put pen to paper. And a lot of people are like that. Like if if Mm. you try and get my forced mum to do Mm. something creative and she's digging her heels in that she doesn't want to it's you it's well it's it's a lack of understanding to do that I guess too because Graham will always say oh why aren't you drawing why don't you draw me a picture draw me a picture and it's like just that statement in itself just makes me unable to do anything if a child Whereas, said to you draw me a picture yeah then I, oh, oh my god with Polly that was the last time I drew was when Polly was small because we mm. used to trade drawings all the time and mm. it was just a thing that we did you know and it was a joyous thing that we made stuff together and like then for Christmas a couple of years ago she bought me a sand casting workshop and she bought herself the mm. same thing and we went off and made jewelry and that was just so much fun you know, like I got so much out of that day just making shit mm-hmm. for no reason. Like I wasn't expecting to have anything like at the end of it that I was going to wear or anything, you know, just it was just the process. There you go. It was just the process. That The, the, the shift from just making anything and it's fun because mm. there's no pressure there must be something to do with the expectations that we put on ourselves about 
doing the thing. Yeah. But it's what you're bringing to it, what your expectations are. And I kind of had to, I've kind of. I've always been like that though. Like I was the kid that would do the drawing that everybody would say, oh, that's amazing. And I'd be screwing it up and putting it in the bin because it wasn't perfect enough. Our own critic is terrible. Yeah. And, you know, I used to do that at art school. I used to throw away more stuff than I actually ended up with in my folio. So then at the end of the year, they'd say, is this all you've got? And it was because I'd thrown away like three times as much as what I showed there. But, Are you um, interested in, in in doing any drawing anymore? Yeah, I am. I just haven't done it. I need to actually really force myself into a routine and then once the routine started... That should be it. And part of that is my having a space to do it in because the dining room table is not appropriate for mm. that sort of work because of the nature of the table. Mm. And I do have a desk, but it's covered in crap and it's under the stairs where all the other big mess is. Yeah. So I ne- ne- I'm literally got to, um, I've got to um, excavate my site, if you like, <laughs> to be able to work. Do you think that there. if you if you introduced a discipline of drawing that you would fret for the time that you're not spending doing the knitting and the and the other things or is it all part of the one massive expression? So yeah, it's all part or of the exertion, one. whatever it is. Yeah, no, it's all part of the one and the reason why I tend not to do the drawing is because I'm such a social being that if it takes me away from the the room where the main action is happening, I get FOMO. too anxious. Yeah, fear, total. But why don't, why get, can't you sit and draw with it while all the people are doing the whatever they're doing? I don't know because I just don't feel like I've got a comfortable space to do it in, I guess. But I guess if I just, like I've bought myself a few sketchbooks lately and some um, nice new pens and stuff trying mm-hmm. to get myself worked up about doing things and I could just sit with a sketchbook in my lap while I'm watching yeah. TV. Yeah, well, I should <laughs> And not I have expectations, like that you're going to create used, anything. No, everybody used to make jokes about my meeting minutes, you know, like all my notes from any of the meetings because like the three quarters of the page is taken up with, with doodles. Yeah. And then the, and the, like people would um, take turns in who got to keep the doodles. <laughs> like it was quite interesting. People are always sort of laughing at those. And I always remember those notes that you used, those hieroglyphic notes that you used to write <laughs> when we were working at um, CAE. CAE. Yeah. Like just, yeah. I've, been, I've been obsessed with uh, hieroglyphics and alphabeticals for so many years. Yeah. I've just actually started. Just a doing... little musical transition for a moment here because we're veering way off track. I don't think you're going to find anybody who's creative that hasn't had life impacting things, you know, impact on the way Mm. that they create. And it's not just about physical art or craft. It's like music, it's writing, it's everything. Yeah. Not everybody has the same experience or drivers or responses or any of it. Yeah. But where it's extraordinary where the connections lie and what you can learn from hearing about other people's reflections on what 
they've gone through. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, I've known you so well, but really the whole time I've known you, I've, I knew that you doodled and but I didn't know about that sort of, I don't know, the hidden, the darkness that sits around a lack of confidence with withdrawing because you've always really? been such a no absolutely because you've <laughs> I, I always viewed you so as this incredibly and, uh, creative person who who your creativity is manifest in these amazing knitted creations and crocheted things that you would you know just pull out of your bottom and they were the most amazing things wow just draw jaw dropping and then to know that there's this other bit of you as well that I thought it was and the kind thing of is that you're saying no and the fact that you're saying I don't have the right space to do this in and I'm like there's part of me that's going uh, have you ever heard of plain air painting or yeah <laughs> I know. Plain air? you know where was, you just it, do it where you are like it, you don't need like to have the, a space it, it, no, it's like the mental space. It's the mental I know, capacity. But it's yeah. not about the physical space. It's about feeling cluttered or feeling um, hemmed in or whatever. And it's just having that place. And, that, and I get it now. For me, it's like physically I don't have the space to be able to park myself and just do. Yeah, like, I understand. Because I'll always have to pack it all up. And Yeah, it is. That's the thing. When I was at home, like living at my parents' place, I was always drawing or what have you because I was doing it in front of the television where everybody else was in that mm. room, you know. Whatever I did, I did in that room. So I find it and like at art school, it was always a very social thing because you were in the printmaking studio mm. or a painting studio with a whole lot of other people. So it's a social thing for me as well. Totally. You know, feeling connected. Part of being part of a group is that all of my most fulfilling friendships have been with people who also like to make stuff and if I'm making stuff around them we're feeding off each other and Mm. we're creating and it makes it so much more vibrant and exciting making stuff around each other made us want to make more stuff Yeah. yeah and also you don't you don't sit in judgment or criticism of the things that other people do but somehow for some reason we um, apply this filter over mm. the like we allow each other to be very free, you know, just it's yeah. that flow, yeah. and you're just doing it. But somehow, like I can't do that because I'm not good enough at it. Which and if you never do it, you'll never be good enough at it. Mm. So you've got to let all the judgment stuff go and just well, do it. So- like. Yeah, but you're disciplined about it in a whole different way and it was like without going to art school, you know, you didn't have to have that external Mm. driver. You know, it's really interesting to watch what happens and how people develop, you know, and who needs that external driver and who doesn't, you know. Well, it's, you know, I I, so many times after I I had my injury, I thought, oh, would it be really good to go and study at, art school yeah. and to do a do, like to really learn because I don't know anything and then mm. I realized well first of all I can't because I can't sit at desks and I can't mm. wouldn't be able to write essays when I needed to yeah. and all of this stuff that I couldn't do then I just thought I can learn what I like the resources are there for you to learn yeah, well, anything or explore anything you want to at your own speed in your own yeah. way and you and don't, you'll learn you more don't because it. you're actually 
self-motivating, mm. you know, so you're going to research the things that interest you and you don't have to do all the other mm. peripheral stuff. The only thing, you know, it was really interesting because people always used to go, oh, life drawing, I hate life drawing, and I think, but that's the thing that's teaching you skills to be able to do everything else. Mm. So, you know, without that basic skill of being able to draw what you see, how can you draw what's in your imagination or, yeah. or do and anything thing, else? And so the thing about Deb doing and I meander or... down yet another tangential pathway, I will draw a line underneath this episode. Really kind of glad that I discovered what I did about Deb and her desire to draw, but her block about doing it. I hope she doesn't try and draw underneath the stairs at her desk but instead installs herself right in the centre of all the action because that's where she thrives. And if you're still listening, I'd just like to thank you so much for hanging in there with us. Debski, you're a champion and you're a wonderful talent and I can't wait to see what comes from your pen because this has been been something that's dormant for way, way, way too long. Thank you for being on the show to Blue Ant, who have provided me with the tech that have made this podcast possible. And thank you too to Dallas Cosmos, who has provided the musical interludes and the theme song for this podcast. It's called Good Goodbye, and it's from his album The Memory Keys. And thank you too to the people who have lent financial support to the project through Patreon and PayPal. Your vote of confidence in what I'm doing means the world. And if anyone else is interested in lending their support, you'll find links in the show notes about how to do that. The next episode of the podcast will be coming shortly and that's with an amazing, colourful artist called Nulzi and I'm really excited to bring that to you. And all that's left now is for me to bid you a good goodbye. Until next time. Where Art and Grief Meet is a Soap and Sun production produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge their continuing contribution to Australian culture. I told you I had a cold. <laughs>